This is God's word. When they had heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is God's word. We are still under the theme of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, this is uh, three parts. So this is the third part where we are still under this banner of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And we finished last week with Jesus giving that bold proclamation at the climax of the feast in verses 37 to 39, where he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus is doing there is he is offering them an eternally thirst-quenching drink for their souls. He is offering them a drink that their souls long for, and the only drink that can truly and eternally satisfy one's soul. And now, as we move on from verse 40 onwards, even through to chapter 8, the discourse that we read stays under this banner of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we will see in a moment uh, how Jesus' statement of being light of the world is still connected with the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, But before we get to this, we need to address uh, perhaps an elephant in the room. The other story we have in our passage that you probably have in your Bibles uh, in verses uh, 53 um, through to chapter 8, verse 11, or you may even have a footnote. So in your Bibles, uh, from the end of verse 52... You might have some uh, brackets that say something like the earliest manuscripts do not have 753 to 811, or it might even be a footnote in your Bibles. Uh, This is where we get to the necessary and sometimes fun, sometimes not topic of textual criticism. And it's something that we need to talk about today. The way I want to approach this today with this story of the woman caught in adultery and the fact that uh, our Bibles likely say this is not in the earliest manuscripts and it's in double brackets or it's a footnote to suggest that it's not actually the authoritative Word of God. So what I want to do today is to uh, firstly 
uh, give a background of textual criticism and then look at uh, this story of the woman caught in adultery and why I do not believe that it is the Word of God in the sense of the uh, Holy Spirit um, authored, written by man, but divinely inspired by the Spirit, uh, Word of God that is inerrant and infallible. Uh, but I will take a look at the, the passage and show um, how many of the principles that we get from the story of the woman caught in adultery are not necessarily heretical. They're not wrong. In fact, we have other passages in Scripture that would seem to support the story that went on. And then I hope that that will take less than half of our time. The other half, we will look at our passage and see how Jesus' statement of being light of the world flows beautifully on the back end of verse 52. So that's what we're going to do today. We need to discuss this topic of textual criticism. Textual criticism is simply where we examine the sources of the Bible to ascertain what the text actually says, to find out what the text actually says. So textual criticism isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's how we know that the Word of God is the Word of God different from higher textual criticism that came out of 19th century Germany, which tried to uh, take apart all of the Bible and was very much man coming over the Bible. Textual criticism, the science of textual criticism, is a good thing so that we can know that the Bible is actually the inerrant, infallible Word of God. So you may or may not know uh, that we have our Bible today from copies of fragments of manuscripts and sources uh, from within, uh, certainly within a hundred years of uh, the time of Jesus, early second century. Some people date uh, some of the first copies to the very late first century, but mostly the second century and then for the next several hundred years. We have all of these copies, mostly copies of copies of the original. We don't have any original manuscripts which is not a problem at all. So we don't have any original manuscripts of uh, the book of Romans or anything like that. What we have is copies and these copies come about because we have fragments of the copies. Uh, this is not a problem at all. Firstly, it's not a problem that we don't have any original uh, copies. It's highly likely that we would simply turn them into idols. Can you imagine if someone had a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans? I mean, we make idols out of anything. It's highly likely that we would just make an idol out of it. So God in his mercy has preserved us from having the original manuscripts. But God, thankfully, has not left us without a wealth of resources. And this is where we can take great comfort. These fragments of the copies that we have that then inform what the Word of God is, we have a wealth of resources. We have almost 6,000 manuscripts, fragments uh, in the Greek and Hebrew language that uh, we get the Word of God uh, from, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, mostly Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and we have the fragments of these, up to 6,000 copies of them. If you include other languages like Latin and Syriac, which would have been written within 500 years, then the numbers go up to about 25,000 copies. Now, just to put this in context and to demonstrate how significant the number of manuscripts that we have is, for various famous people throughout history, Julius Caesar, for example, 
wrote a, an account of the Gallic Wars. In his famous piece, The Gallic Wars, we have 10 manuscripts of that. For one of Plato's works, we have seven manuscripts. For Aristotle's Poetics, we have 49 manuscripts. And all of these leave a gap of over a thousand years between when Plato or Aristotle wrote them to the very first copy that we have. That's a thousand year gap. Compared to the Bible where we have over 6,000 or up to 6,000 rather copies, and some of them are within just a few decades, certainly within a century of the original manuscript, which we call the autograph. Now, no one ever doubts the existence of Plato, but we have a thousand year gap between what he wrote, and I'm not doubting his existence either, but it's interesting that the Bible is one of the most uh, tested books of the world, really, and of obviously Jesus is one of the most tried and tested figures, and all of the resources that we have leave us with a wealth of evidence uh, to know the Word of God. For example, in a simple way, uh, we know what the text actually says because of all of these resources. So if you have 20 manuscripts of this section of the Gospel of John, and 18 of them um, do not have the woman caught in adultery in them. Two of them do, but of those two, they're in different places. And then of the 18 that don't have it in there, some of those manuscripts are some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. It's quite easy to tell that actually this story isn't in the Bible. Now, that's just a simple example of how all of this wealth of resources that we have helps us to actually see what is in the Word of God, and indeed, what is the Word of God. And the reality is that a significant percentage of the text in all of the various manuscripts, remember, we have copies of copies, and a significant portion of the text, let's say we have 50 copies of Paul's letter to the Roman church, a significant percentage of that text is identical there is still a percentage of variances, but most of the variances, most of the differences are really to do with things like spelling errors or things that don't change the meaning of the text. So with the wealth of resources we have, we can clearly see what the Word of God is saying. I think this actually adds to the evidence and the, the confidence that we can have in the Word of God. So don't let anyone deceive you into thinking the Bible is just full of variances, it's full of differences. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking there's just no hope. How can we know what the Word of God is saying? It seems like the Bible is up for grabs now. That's not the case. It's an absolute lie. God has been faithful over the preservation of His holy Word. Just as God was faithful over the authoring of His Word, He is faithful because He remains sovereign over the preservation of His Word over thousands of years. And we, with the resources that we have, can see that there is much consistency through the scribal process. There is more consistency than there is inconsistency in the Bible. And the wealth of resources that we have only serves to reinforce the clarity and the infallibility of Scripture. So that's a bit of a background on textual criticism. Now, as we look at this story here with the woman caught in adultery, my view on this story 
which is backed up by the majority of faithful New Testament scholars, which doesn't mean really anything. Uh, You still need to make sure that what I'm saying is true. Uh, But I do think I have the evidence on my side. Um, My view is that this is not Scripture in the sense that it is not God's inspired holy word. That doesn't mean that uh, parts of this story, it, it doesn't mean even that this story never happened. This story very well could have happened. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's anything heretical about this story. But let me give the reasons, three main reasons why I don't believe this is scripture. This passage does not show up in any Greek manuscripts for the first 500 years of the church. It doesn't show up in any Greek manuscripts, none at all. There are some later, but they are much later. There are no early church fathers. They are those who uh, would have commented on the Bible, Irenaeus, uh, Polycarp, all the way to Athanasius and Augustine. There are no early church fathers that commented on this passage. All of them skip over from verse 52 to then chapter 8, verse 12. So they never comment on it. Um, This is more of a technical one. The grammar in the original language, if you read this in the original language, the grammar of it is slightly different. That doesn't mean a whole lot. There's other parts of Scripture where sometimes grammar is different. That doesn't mean that it's not the Word of God. But when you look at this, uh, a lot of the wording that is used, there are a number of words that are not used anywhere else in the Gospel of John, which again doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think that just adds into the cumulative evidence that would say that this is not Scripture. And that's why most of your Bibles now say the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage, which is to say none of the early manuscripts have this passage. For the first 500 years of the church, this story doesn't show up. And then when it does, this story shows up in different places. Some have it in Luke's Gospel, some have it elsewhere in John. It seems like this was added much, much later. Now, again, that doesn't mean uh, that this story never happened. This story could very well have happened, and it is a beautiful story. Um, There are many aspects of this story which we see consistency through the rest of Scripture, particularly the mercy shown in Jesus toward this woman, and especially the devilish and rascalish attempts of the Pharisees to trap Jesus. That's very consistent with what they are doing elsewhere in Scripture. So what I want to do now, rather than unpacking this passage as authoritative Scripture, because I don't believe it is authoritative Scripture, I simply want to look at the main principles of this passage and demonstrate that there are consistencies elsewhere in Scripture and there are comforts that we can have, just like there are other sources outside of the Bible that we can draw much comfort from and that are very consistent with God's Word. And then after this, we will come back to our passage from verses 40 to 52 of chapter 7, and then Jesus' statement in chapter 8, verse 12, of being light of the world. So the situation we have here in the woman caught in adultery is that uh, the Pharisees or the Jews are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trap him because they bring this woman caught in adultery. Now, Jesus would have known, uh, if this did happen, that um, it's a capital offense, So the woman and the man, the man's not in this story, which is always an interesting thing. The man is not there, but the woman um, 
must have been, uh, was required to be put to death along with the man. Um, it was a capital punishment under Jewish law. The problem is the Jews are under Roman rule at the time. Jews can't put anyone to death. The Romans would not let them. That would be a symbol of insurrection. So that's why Jesus had to have Pilate, had to go before Pilate, and he was put to death by the Romans. So it's a trap because if Jesus says, yes, she should be put to death, then of course they can go to the Romans and say, well, this man Jesus is causing an insurrection. He wants to put people to death. If he says no, then the Jews could simply say, well, he's a heretic. He's not abiding by the law of Moses. So he seems to be stuck, but of course, uh, Jesus doesn't respond in the way that they assume. Jesus responds by firstly writing in the ground, and then eventually he says, let him who has uh, no sin or let him who is without sin cast the first stone at her. And we read that eventually they all draw back one by one. And finally, Jesus is left there with the woman and Jesus says to the woman, uh, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on sin no more. So the, the picture that we see here is those who attempted to point out the gross sin of the woman, and indeed it is, it is a gross sin in the eyes of God, those who attempt to point out this gross sin of the woman, they end up drawing back in shame as Jesus exposes their sin, and then the woman who had her sin exposed to Jesus ends up receiving mercy, which is an interesting picture that I believe we see elsewhere in Scripture in many ways. We think firstly of uh, Jesus' words on judgment and talking about making sure that we are judging ourselves before we cast judgment upon anyone else, taking the log out of our, our own eye uh, before we try and take the speck out of someone else. I think we see the principle of that in this story. Uh, we also see... Uh, what Jesus has actually come for. So think of the story where Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of um, eating with tax collectors and sinful people. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says, I have come not for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. That's why I have come, to call sinners to repentance, which is him saying, I have not come for righteous people to call out other people's sin. I've come for everyone to realize that they are sinners before a holy God, and the only righteousness they will have is through me. So we see that in this passage. As we look specifically at the response that Jesus gives to the woman, I know my mind certainly went straight to the story of uh, another very promiscuous woman in Luke 7, where Jesus is dining with Simon the Pharisee, a noble Pharisee invites Jesus to his house in Luke 7 toward the end of it. And then this sinful woman who is portrayed as way more promiscuous than this woman caught in adultery, she is described as a woman of the city, which is to say a very loose woman, a woman that all of the men know because she is effectively a prostitute. She's a uh, loose woman. And in this story, this notoriously sinful woman comes to Jesus and she is weeping at his feet. And she takes ointment and anoints him with expensive oil. 
and she wipes her tears with her hair on his feet. And Jesus looks at the woman and he uses it to say, Simon, when I walked into the house, you didn't greet me at all. You didn't anoint me. And look at this sinful woman. Look at what she is doing. And he basically holds this sinful woman up as sort of this poster child of what genuine love for God looks like in the face of Simon the Pharisee. So he says to the woman, this promiscuous woman, woman, your sins are forgiven. And he actually says, look at how she loves. Yes, her sins are many. So yes, he recognized she is a sinful woman, but he says her sins, which are many, they are forgiven. For look at how she loves. Look at her love. It is an expression of a forgiven heart. Now, I think that is similar. We don't have uh, the background of this story, but it's interesting to think about how this woman caught in adultery, if indeed this did happen, how she would have responded. Maybe it was a very similar response as Jesus looked at her and said, where are your accusers? Oh, and by the way, I do not condemn you. Imagine how she must have responded. So although I do not believe that this story is divinely inspired, I think we can see the principles that we see elsewhere in Scripture of humble self-judgment, of Jesus not coming for the righteous but for sinners, and of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think we see that in this story. Now, although it is a beautiful story, I believe the flow of the passage that we are in is intended to go straight from the end of verse 52 to the proclamation of Jesus in chapter 8, verse 12. So let's work our way through this passage as we come back to the start in verse 40. Remember, this is still under the banner of the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 40, we see uh, confusion and division. We again see the superficial judgments that Jesus has been warning about. He's warned about their superficial fleshly judgments time and time again. And Jesus, uh, and rather these people, uh, demonstrate still a superficial judgment of Jesus. So we see the confusion and the division here. Some say um, this really is the prophet, referring to the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Others say, um, no, this is the Christ. They obviously make a distinction between the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 and then the Messiah. And then others uh, question Jesus' origins and whether they are consistent with Scripture because they say in uh, verse 42, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? They're obviously ignorant to the fact that Jesus did indeed come uh, from Bethlehem, but they know him as Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. And so they, of course, say, well, this man couldn't be. He's not consistent with the Scriptures. So John says in verse 43, there was a division amongst the people And we instantly think of Jesus' words elsewhere where he says, I have not come to bring peace, but division. We see this tangibly playing out here. Jesus, in fact, says, I've come to bring division. I've come to set uh, son against father, daughter against mother. I've come to separate family members. That's what happens. Again, there is no ambiguity with Jesus. He is calling them to either be for him or against him. There's no middle ground. And this is what continues to happen to this day. Division over who Christ is. Jesus comes to draw a line in the sand and call people to be either completely for him or completely against him. 
He finds it intolerable to have people who are lukewarm, uh, those who are neither for or against, those who are in this ambiguous state. Jesus has come to bring division so that those who are truly his would be seen to be truly his. And after the division that we see in this passage, we see deception. So the two main themes are division and deception. The Pharisees have sent officers to arrest Jesus, but that doesn't work because as we've seen elsewhere in John, Jesus will not be arrested before his appointed time. He will not be handed over a second sooner or a second later than his divinely appointed time. And now the response of the officers, these are probably temple officers, these are Jewish people rather than Romans, I believe, temple officers who have come to try and arrest him. And they come back to the Pharisees and their response is one of utter astoundment. They say, no one ever spoke like this. It's literally never has a man spoken like this. It's almost as if to say, this is not merely a man. This is someone divine. That's like what they are saying here. Never has a man spoken like this. I read one commentator who described this by saying, the officers came to arrest Jesus, but Jesus arrested them. He held them captive. He held them captive by their words of truth. They heard him talking in the temple. They heard him teaching and they were just held captive by him. They said, this, this is not a mere man. No one's ever spoken like this with this authority. And now we see the deception amongst the Pharisees. Look at verse 47. They say to the officers, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And here we see the greatest irony in the Pharisees. The Pharisees claim the officers and crowds are deceived. And yet there is no greater deception than that of themselves. There is no greater deception than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the most deceived since they are the closest to Scripture and yet they are the furthest away. They search the Scriptures diligently. We read that in chapter 5. They search the Scriptures so diligently and yet they are completely deceived. They are completely blinded. They are kept under the stronghold of the devil who darkens people's minds. Jesus will go on to say this in chapter 8 when he directly says to the Jewish people, you are of your father the devil. That's who you are of. Your minds are darkened. You cannot see that I am the Christ. You are not of God. You are of your father the devil. Again, drawing a line in the sand, you're either for God or you are of the devil. They are deceived by Satan who is the ultimate deceiver. So in our passage, even as Nicodemus tries to reason with them, Nicodemus pops his head up again. He will do later on as well. And he tries to say, hey, shouldn't this man be given a proper hearing? Shouldn't we judge with, you know, somewhat proper judgment? Seems like we're just superficially judging here. But the Pharisees, again, demonstrate how deceived they are by turning to the scriptures. Notice they say in verse 52, To Nicodemus, are you from Galilee to search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? They're turning to the scriptures to claim that these scriptures are the evidence for Jesus not being the Christ. When the scriptures are the very evidence, the very thing that point to Jesus as the Christ, and they are immersing themselves in them with a blindfold on. They are reading them in the dark with their eyes closed. They are 
not seeing that the scriptures are pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, even as they are trying to prove that the scriptures are the reason why Jesus is not the Messiah. Now, these themes of division and deception are setting the stage for Jesus' bold proclamation of being light of the world, because with division and deception, we see this picture of darkness. We see darkness over the minds of these people who are divided upon Christ. We see darkness over the minds of the Pharisees who are deceived. The Jews are living in utter darkness. And here is why Jesus' statement in verse 12 of chapter 8 links so well with the end of verse 52, because in verse 52, we have this ultimate picture of darkness where the the picture is that the Jews are searching the Scriptures so diligently to see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I mean, these are the very scriptures that are supposed to be a light to their path and a lamp to their feet. They are these scriptures, and yet they are reading them in darkness. They are veiled, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. They are veiled. They are reading them with a veil over their face. It is only in Christ the veil is lifted off. And the light of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ, this Messiah who is standing right before them. He is the light to their path. He is the lamp to their feet because he is the very word of God in the flesh right before them. Now, the other link between this section and Jesus' statement of being light is the fact that, remember, we are still at the Feast of Tabernacles. We still have this background of the feast. And remember how the water drawing ceremony served as a background for Jesus to then boldly proclaim, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, there was another prominent rite or ritual at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was to do with lights. So there was this ritual that they would do where they would uh, light these four great lamps They would do this in the court of women of the temple. They were these huge lamps. And as these huge lamps were lit, the men themselves would light torches. They would dance around singing and rejoicing. And remember, this is in a city well before electricity. This is in a city where it's completely pitch black outside. And then these huge lamps are lit up. And you would be able to see the light from miles away. The glowing light that reminded them of their time in the wilderness, where what was it that led them, that showed God's presence in the night? It was the fire, the light. Just as the cloud guided them through the day, the light guided them at night. And so they were remembering this as they were taking, as they were rejoicing in in these festivities, as the lamps were lit. And it was this huge source of light. And Jesus, again, uses this as a background to give this bold declaration and this invitation. I am light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is another invitation from Jesus, just as he invited those who are thirsty with the backdrop of them doing the water uh, pouring ceremony and remembering that they, with the, from the wells of water, we will draw our salvation. We will rejoice in the Lord, remembering that the water was connected with God's outpouring of the Spirit. And Jesus comes and says, if anyone's thirsty, if any soul thirsts 
for salvation come to me and drink. Likewise, as they are now dancing around the lights, or as they've just been doing every night of the week, lighting these big lamps, Jesus says, I am light of the world. If anyone's in darkness, come to me. I'm light. I am the presence of God with you. I'm the one who will guide you. Now, what is Jesus saying? Let's uh, pick this apart a little bit by taking five principles from this statement of what Jesus is saying by declaring that he is the light of the world. Firstly, the glory of God has broken into the world. The glory of God has broken into the world. We saw this in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. Glory is connected with light. In fact, uh, glory can mean light. It means radiance, brightness, splendor, and majesty. We think of passages like Isaiah 60. In Isaiah 60, it talked about this foreshadowing of light connected with glory. So let me read Isaiah 60 verses 1 and 2. This is God uh, speaking, saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of God has risen upon you. This is him talking to his people Israel in a place of darkness. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of God has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Notice that. This was the hope of God's people, that though it seemed like the glory had departed, though it seemed like they were in darkness, they were under oppression, their hope was that there would come a time where the glory of God would rise upon them again. This is what God is saying. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of God has risen upon you. And then he says, Yahweh will rise upon you and you will be, you, your, uh, his glory will be seen upon you. So this is described like light shining in a land of darkness. And now in comes Jesus as the true light coming into the world where the darkness cannot overcome him. He is the true light shining upon the people. This is what God was talking about in Isaiah 60. The light will shine upon you. You will see glory. And here comes Jesus. And John says, he became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. We have beheld his radiance. In the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus, it's where these future promises of Yahweh shining upon his people in a land of darkness, they break into the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, as Paul says, God's light has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see God shining upon us as we look to his son, Jesus Christ. As he says, I am light of the world. I am the glory of God, the very representation of God shining upon you. In Jesus, we see the glory of God radiating. So the glory of God has broken into the world. Secondly, Jesus has come to illuminate people to what is truly good. Throughout John's gospel, light and darkness are used in opposition, just like truth and false, good and evil. There are these things used in opposition. Light and darkness are used in contrast, and light is connected with what is true and what is good. 
Jesus is saying he is light of the world to say he has come to bring people to what is true and what is good. So he is light of the world in the sense that he is the truth of all existence. To reject Jesus is to live, is to actually be immersed in the lies of the devil, which claims there is life outside of Christ. To reject Jesus is to buy into the lies of the world under the stronghold of the devil, which claims that there is life outside of Christ. It is to reject truth. We speak about the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th century. Jesus offers the only genuine enlightenment, the only genuine enlightenment where people come to the truth as he offers them to come to him as the way, the truth, and the life. Not only is he the truth, he is everything that is good. He is light of the world in the sense that he is good. And goodness here is not simply a moral goodness. Not like we often use the word. Goodness is a beauty. It is a radiance. It is a splendor. That's how uh, one of the words in Greek for good is described. It's not simply a moral goodness. It's actually an attractiveness. There's a beauty to it. And that is supremely found in Jesus Christ. And here's why this is immeasurably important for us. Because in our society, we are in a place that, of course, elevates feelings over truth and exchanges uh, good for evil. We are, of course, in this place where feelings are elevated over truth, so all sorts of things can be changed because of our feelings, and we exchange good for evil. And this is what sin has always done to the world. Sin has always done this to humanity, where we call evil good and good evil, and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 1. This is what the world does. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we exchange goodness for evil. And Jesus has come as a light to illuminate those who are living in deception and evil to what is true and what is good. And what is true and what is good will only ever be found in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Jesus is the ongoing source of life for those who follow him. I won't spend much time on this because hopefully we've seen this theme pop up again and again in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the source of life. He's a source of living waters. He's the bread of life. He's true drink. He's the source of sustenance for hungry souls. Last week, I spoke about how Jesus is the source of life from living waters, and that is that he is a drink for desperate beggars. He is a drink for those who are desperate, who realize that they cannot take an, an electrolyte drink. They must be hooked up to an IV drip eternally, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the source of life. We see this because he says, the one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows Christ is connected to the source of life. They have the light of life, just as those who believe in him are connected to the source of living waters. Those who follow him are connected to the source of light. And notice the progression that we've seen here. I don't know if you missed that. The progression from what we went over last week. Jesus links the call to come and drink from him with the call to believe in him. And now he says the call to come to him as light is linked with those who follow there is a progression happening here. There is no true believing without following. 
There is no true following without being conformed to the pattern of Christ. That's what it means to be a follower. It means to be a disciple, which necessarily means that your life must reflect the fact that you are following your teacher, which means you must be being conformed to the pattern of Christ. And conformity to Christ comes as we simply remain connected to the source of life. There is this progression of believing and following, but the reality is that us being conformed to the pattern of Christ will come as we remain connected to the source of life. We'll see this in John 15, of just abiding in Christ. Our last two, very quickly. Fourthly, everything makes sense in his light. Jesus saying, I am light of the world is to say everything makes sense in his light. His light is the place of clarity and sensibility. It's the place of rationality. Things don't make sense apart from Christ. So the psalmist says, in your light, do we see light? As if to say, we can't even see what light is unless you bring us into your light. We can't even know what is true and what is good unless God in his mercy reveals that to us, unless he illuminates that to us. He does that in common grace to people. If he withdrew completely, then everything would descend into utter chaos. The reason that we have some sense of rationality in this world is because God in his mercy reveals his goodness in certain ways, but particularly to those who have been born of God. We do not know anything truly good unless we come into his light. C.S. Lewis famously said this where he, he said, I believe in Christianity the same way I believe that the sun has risen. Not simply because I see that the sun has risen, but because by it, I see everything else. He's talking about the S-U-N sun rising. So he says, I believe that the sun has risen, not simply because I look to it, but because by it, I, I see everything else. Everything makes sense. In the light, the world doesn't make sense apart from a redeemer. The world doesn't make sense apart from a holy God who makes himself known to his people, who reveals himself to his people. The world doesn't make sense, especially apart from a just God who will punish every form of injustice. The world is a chaotic place if there is no just God who will eventually bring every single bit of injustice the world has ever known into perfect justice, how that makes sense, how terrible it is to live in a world where there is no justice for all of the atrocities and wrongs done in this world. So as we come to Christ, who is the light of the world, then we suddenly look at the world with a greater clarity and sensibility. Things make sense in the light of Christ. They, we are illuminated to the truth. And just finally, a word of comfort from our fifth application here. Christ will illuminate whatever is necessary for us to walk faithfully. So his promise here is that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now we know, and it's very easy to miss the weight of this when we're not going through horrible, horrible circumstances. And praise God that we're not going through horrible, horrible circumstances. But it's really easy to miss the weight of this. The reality is that there will be times in our life of great darkness. There will be times of darkness. There will be times of devastating loss. There will be trials. There will be such agonizing difficulty in your life. Guaranteed. 
If the Lord has his hand upon you, he is a good father who will discipline you by bringing you into devastating circumstances so that he might reveal his mercy and his comfort so that you would know you are a weak jar of clay and yet his glory is seen in the fact that you are sustained through that as a weak jar of clay. You will go through devastation. And the promise here is that the light of Christ, the preserving light of Christ will not be taken away. That's the promise. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You won't walk in darkness. We may walk through the valley of the shadow of death and the Lord will be our light to illuminate us in that valley. And it may simply be, the light may simply illuminate a few inches in front of you, just as if you're driving a car at night. Just as if you're driving a car at night, you don't have everything illuminated. You don't have uh, the whole highway 20 kilometers in front of you lit up. You have darkness and you have only what is necessary to keep you driving your car in safety. The one who follows Christ will have the light of life, will not walk in darkness. I wonder if you see how comforting this is. See how comforting this is. We are promised an eternal light that is never extinguished by circumstances. We are promised an eternal light that is not extinguished by our circumstances. So the psalmist says in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation Whom shall I fear? What's he saying? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's saying, I have a light that is from the eternal God that is never extinguished. Therefore, I will not fear. I won't fear. I don't need to fear my circumstances. I know that I have the light of my God with me. I have a light that can never be extinguished, therefore I do not fear my circumstances. The Lord is with me. There may be deep darkness and we will surely walk through seasons of very deep darkness. The kind of darkness that is ten- that you, you feel it. You feel it like a heaviness upon you. And the light of Christ will remain with you. It will not be extinguished. It will remain with you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Christ's very presence with us will light our path. 